Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. As you open your Bibles this morning, we don't really have a text that we are going to be working from. We're going to be looking at a variety of texts, so open your Bibles, but stand at the ready to flip around. I thought it would be helpful to take a moment over the next two weeks, perhaps three, to address a very difficult problem for many of us. I don't think that we've done this since I've been here at High Point, and that is to to address the problem of evil. Um, to talk about, from a biblical perspective, how we should answer this alleged problem. I'll talk about in a moment what that is. And this morning, I really just intend to set the table for you, present you with the problem, if you will, and so ensure that you'll be coming back next week for the answer. And um, I hope that you do. But uh, after we do this, then um, December 9th, I think it is, I've been invited to speak down in a church in Philadelphia, and so Pastor Robert will be standing in for me that day. And then uh, we'll come back for our Christmas holiday series as well. And I already have in mind what we'll be doing for that. And come January, the new year, we'll be beginning a new, uh, a new book that we'll begin working through. And I feel like I've whet your appetite enough for what expository preaching is. We started in Mark, which was a race, in chapters 1 through 16. We moved through that in just about a little over two years and um, and so that got you uh, used to what that's like going verse by verse. And then we went through First Timothy, and we went through that rather slowly, but it is an epistle, and so epistles move much more slowly. And it's a short one, though. So six years, just shy of two years, or six verses, just shy of two years to get through that. And next, we'll probably be looking at something more substantial. And so if 10 years seems long to you, Maybe I'll finish it in eight. So wherever we land next, I hope you like the book. (laughs) But it will be from the Scriptures, so uh, I already have in mind, I think, where we're heading that uh, in that direction too. At least I have, I think, it whittled down to two books anyway. So, like I said, open your Bibles and um, and stand at the ready for where what we want to address this morning. The title of this morning's message is. Where is God? Where is God? A theology of suffering. Eli Wiesel was a Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany during World War II. Some of you might be familiar with his name. Others of you might be familiar with his literature. In Birkenbau, he watched as his mother and sister And eventually the rest of his family were forced into extermination ovens or expired through poor living conditions and and hard labor. In fact, his father passed away just three months before the 6th Army Division, the American forces liberated their own concentration camp where prisoners would murder each other over a piece of bread. Infants were thrown into the air as target practice for machine guns and tossed from windows 
to be pitchforked by guards for sport. And Weasel describes in what is called the central event in his book called Night, a turning point in his life of one particular hanging that the prisoners were forced to watch as they were accustomed to. But in this particular hanging, a young boy was too light for his neck to break, and he suffered an agonizingly slow death. And he gruesomely describes that experience. And after standing there watching, they were forced to march by, and as they looked up and saw the boy dangling, they realized he was still alive, passing in and out of consciousness. And records a conversation which he overheard, which one asks, where is God? And another answered, where is he? He is hanging here on this gallows. And Weasel continues in his book, Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. As the camp then broke, the Jews went back to their respective barracks to celebrate the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and that's where uh, Eleazar uh, realized that he, um, he hated God. Eli a Weasel realized that he hated God. And he said, Blessed be God's name. Why? But why would I bless Him? Every fiber of my being rebelled. Because He caused thousands of children to burn in His mass graves? Because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days? Because in his great might he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death? How could I say to him, Blessed be thou almighty, master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces? But now, I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser. God, the accused. What's horrifying to us about that was I wasn't done by some malcontempt, murderous individual, as you know. The plot of the Jews didn't rest in the hands of even one single man. And our, our stomachs would churn with horror and disgust, even if that were so. But this behavior instead was endorsed by a fully developed modern nation, not even 75 years ago. For many of you, it was in your own lifetime. But that's in stark contrast to Corey Ten Boom's prison letters 
in which she writes as a Christian of her experience in the concentration camps. She experienced the same evils, but she said this, however deep the pit, God's love is deeper still. She would thank God for the maggots in her bread, for providing to her an additional source of protein in order that she might live through the day. But we continue to see and hear about other atrocities and strikingly evil crimes, both at national and individual levels. They've been found in every single generation since the fall of man and since Cain murdered his brother in a jealous rage. Job, who was acquainted with grief, said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, For man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. Pain, suffering, trouble are absolute certainties of life. We are all too familiar with pain and suffering in this world, whether at the hands of men or as it's caused by some natural disaster, disease, famine, some kind of pestilence, or some other tragedy. And as we try to reconcile the character of God, knowing that He is good, and knowing that He is all-powerful, we ask the question, is God on trial? Are we the accuser and God the accused? How do we respond to suffering? And so much of that answer is found in merely reconciling the character of God with the existence of pain and suffering. And that has been known as the problem of evil. This is what we're talking about. How is it that God, who is a good God, allows pain and suffering in this world? Has been one way to stage the question. Theologians refer to it as theodicy, coming from two Greek words meaning God and righteousness or justice. Theos in Dekaiosune. So, the defense or justification of God's righteousness is what theodicy refers to. The defense of God's righteousness given the existence of evil and pain. And the question has been proposed a number of ways. If God exists, why is there evil in this world? If God is good, as we said earlier, why does He allow suffering? If God is righteous, why does He allow injustice? If God is omniscient, meaning that He is all-knowing, all-wise, why did He create Satan? Who would lead the angelic rebellion against Him, tempt humanity to fall into sin? Or if God is just, 
How can he condemn men to hell when he knew they'd sin when he created them? That seems provocative. If God is just, why does He allow bad things to happen to good people? And because most Christians are a little bit more theologically acute than that, they realize that that last question is sort of staged the wrong way, right? Because we know from the testimony of Scriptures... Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. And so there is no good. And we might ask the question then this way. If God is just, why does he allow bad things to happen to the innocent? Or to those who belong to him? The innocent, which I will defend on Wednesday night as at uh, Emily Longmore's memorial service, being a judicially declared position for those who do not have the cognitive development to understand that they are in need of salvation and are dead in their trespasses and sins and need to be reconciled to God, those who are young children and the mentally disabled, or, as I said, those who are declared to be righteous by Him, because of His grace, through faith. Or we might ask it this way. If God is just, why does He allow bad things to happen to those who love Him? If God is just, why does He allow bad things to happen to His children? Is He a bad father? Is He inept? Is he deistic, absent from this life? Where is God? Is it some cruel humor that he allows his children to suffer when it is within his means to stop it? That is the problem of evil. That is a problem that humanity has dealt with since the fall. Evil preexisted the fall, of course. Evil existed when Lucifer in his arrogance felt strong and desired to be equal with God, much like Eli Wiesel who felt strong being the accuser and God the accused. But humanity has dealt with the consequences of evil since the fall. So how does God exist and evil exist? The world, as it has grappled with the question, has provided quite a number of answers. Atheism, of course, has answered it by saying there is no God. They deductively argue that the God of the Bible is loving, just, righteous, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-present, benevolent, and good, who created everything. Therefore, because he is loving, just, righteous, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-present, benevolent, and good, he could have created a world that is perfect and good. 
But there is suffering and pain and evil in this world. The God of the Bible could not have created a world with pain and evil while maintaining his characteristics. Therefore, God does not exist. God doesn't exist. Postmodernism answers the question, of course, by rejecting the reality of evil, that evil exists altogether. Evil is nothing more than a social construct. So our perception of evil is really going to just ebb and flow with the times. And so evil is largely just an illusion. It's a social construct. We invent evil and good. Hinduism and Buddhism answer it by denying the reality of pain. Then pain is simply material. We have to transcend transcend, uh, suffering. That is, in fact, salvation. Theological liberals answer the question by redefining the character of God, constructing a God that is a God other than the God of the Bible, a God who is punitive and whose interests might be noble, but who's weak, who's lesser, some lesser being than the revealed God of the Scriptures. Universalists answer the question by arguing that the temporary suffering of this life is appropriate, giving the blessing of eternity for everyone. All are saved, regardless where you come from in life and what your circumstances are or what you believe. And so the supreme moral good is simply living, albeit with pain and suffering in this world, because ultimately we'll all be redeemed in the end. And we'll all enter into eternal glory and joy forever. By the way, eternal joy and glory, however you define it. Arminians answer the question by arguing that freedom of the will is the ultimate moral good. That is the final, supreme, greatest good. And God couldn't create mankind with a will without the necessary consequence that they would then have the ability to choose evil rather than good. And so since freedom of the will is a supreme moral good, God is supremely good because He gave us that freedom of the will even though it resulted in death, agony, despair, pain, and suffering. Open theists have responded to the Arminian position by saying, that's no answer. Maybe you've driven the ball deeper into the field, but it's still in play. Because it begs the question, if God knew by creating man with a free will that most would reject him, and incur death and punishment and pain and suffering would enter into the world because of sin, and he created man anyway, then isn't God complicit? So you see, it just, it just punts. It moves the ball further back, but it doesn't answer the question. How is God absolved from moral culpability just because He created man with a free will when you say that He knew that man would rebel anyway? 
Because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. That doesn't help. If you created something with the potential to do good or bad, and you created it anyway with the full knowledge that it would ultimately do evil, even though you created it with the potential to do good, what does that make you? And furthermore, we also know that since the fall of man, the heart of every man has been animus towards God. Our will is hostile and hopelessly bent on evil and rebellion. Our minds, our wills are bound. We're enslaved to sin and entirely dead to any spiritual thing and determined against anything that would bring God pleasure. We rebel against His law. That is our will. That is our only will. In Psalm 14, David says, The fool has said in his heart, No, God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men, interestingly, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then again, in Psalm 53, David says almost identically the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, No, God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So... Ultimately, God created Adam and Eve knowing that even before the first child would be born to them, that man's hearts would be turned away from him and from there forward be forever enslaved to sin. Freedom of the will? Sure. We do exactly what we want. And what we want is to rebel against God 100% of the time. We are haters of God. Haters of righteousness. So, the open theist answers the problem of evil by saying, therefore, God does not know everything ultimately. He only knows all the potential possibilities And as he experiences humanity and discovers what men decide to do, he then works out the best possible scenario given man's decision. doesn't really know. He just knows all the potential possibilities. And he knows all the potential possibilities for every potential possibility. But that doesn't get the ball out of the ballpark either. Once again, it just moves it to a different place in the field. 
God shouldn't have created something that he knew had the potential to do great evil. And if he truly knows the potential sum of all things, then he should have created something without that potential for evil or not created it at all. So the argument goes. Doesn't solve the problem of evil. Manichaeism was an ancient heresy that has been recently reinvented in metaphysical theodicy, which says that there must always be equal counterparts. In other words, there must always be an antagonist to every story. For every hero, there must be a villain. Every yin must have a yang. Because there is good, there must be evil. Because of the existence of God, there must be a counterpart to God, an antagonist to God. And so since God exists, evil will always exist because evil is the antithesis of God unless God determines not to exist. And so God is just ignorant. God just doesn't know. Doesn't know what to do. Because since God is eternal, He can't cease to exist. And so... Mankind is on this hopeless path, and God is once again weak. The Pentecostal church, Foursquare Church, the Word of Faith movement, says, well, the whole issue is a weakness of faith. That's why there's pain and suffering in the world. If, if only the world had enough faith, all this would be gone. We'd enter into the kingdom. And see, the real objection isn't that bad things happen. The objection, the real objection, is that bad things happen to good people, right? I mean, when have we objected to bad things happening to bad people? We don't object to that. We have no objection when evil or corrupt or bad things happen to those whom we perceive to be deserving of it, or Oftentimes, even those who threaten our security, our alleged constitutional rights, perhaps. And so, whatever evil happens to them is deserved. And so the problem of evil is absolved that way. Weasel even writes how when the father and son role reversed in Buchenwald, and he becomes his father's caregiver, he ashamedly admits, thinking to himself, if only I could get rid of this dead weight. Because his father threatened his own strength, which was needed to survive. But our objection is not really that bad things happen to bad people. Our objection is that bad things happen to allegedly good people or innocent people or those who are lovers of God, God's children. And the Word of Faith movement claims that when bad things happen to good people, it is for lack of faith. And so, to speak of the case of little Emily in our congregation 
who fought cancer for 11 months before she finally passed away, the Pentecostal church would say, well, it was a weakness of faith. Because God could have healed her. In fact, two Wednesdays ago, when I went to visit Emily and the Longmores in Philadelphia before she died later that evening, Josh and I were having that very same conversation, the hopelessness and bankruptcy in that system and others whom they had met in the hospital who were being indoctrinated with the Word of Faith Pentecostal movement who told them that the reason their little child was dying was because of a lack of faith. I see. Whose faith? Child's faith? Emily's faith? Was it her lack of faith that was the problem? And of course, a tangible expression, by the way, of that faith is what comes by giving them money. But it seems doubtful that the problem was with Emily's faith or the faith of a one-year-old child. It was another example and the Longmores had gotten to know well. Because in Matthew 18, 1-5, Jesus holds up the humble dependency of children as an example of mature faith, right? But if her parents, perhaps we would say, had enough faith, then she could have been healed. It wasn't Emily's faith, it wasn't the children's faith, it was the parents' faith. Well, really... And so are we saying then that all of us are hopelessly subject to someone else's faith? Are you kidding me? And how much of someone else's faith do we need? Is one person's perfect faith all that is needed? The faith of her father or her mother? Is it the faith of both? And if that is insufficient, the faith of her family, her brothers and sisters, her grandparents, and if that is insufficient, the faith of her church, how much of someone else's faith do we need? Did God hold Emily's condition subject to a faith not of her own, but of someone else's? What kind of God is that? That isn't a God who is just. And that is why the Pentecostal movement is a perverted, wicked, evil movement. With a false gospel that ought to be readily condemned. That kind of God isn't just. Or we go back to the issue of the insufficient faith of a three-year-old girl. That doesn't work for me either. So, no matter how we answer the question, if we don't answer it biblically, the problem of evil always comes back to God, doesn't it? 
if we don't answer the problem of evil biblically, we don't rescue God. But it begs the question, are we rescuers of God? Does God need to be rescued by humanity? This is the favorite objection of many. To deny the God of Christianity, to continue in their rebellion against Him, to continue in their refusal to receive the gospel of grace, for them it is their favorite reason for rejecting the God of the Bible. And is that justified? Is that justified? Because we don't have an answer to the problem of evil. And the truth is, many believers wrestle with the problem of evil as well because they simply don't know how to answer the question. What do we do with this? Generally, we just ignore it. We hope that the issue doesn't come up. We hope we don't have to deal with it, but we also hope that maybe that the, those who we evangelize are unsuspecting and naive enough not to pose the question, if your God whom you describe exists, why is there pain and suffering in the world? We just ignore it. And maybe even hope that we just personally are familiar with suffering, but don't ever have to become intimately acquainted with it beyond what we have come to universally accept as the norm. I mean, just the status quo kind of evil pain and suffering in this life, right? The pain of childbirth and labor by the sweat of our brow and all that accompanies with it. And if all goes well for three score and ten, we're okay with that. But if our pain, if our suffering becomes unusual in any sense of the word, anxiety, fear, depression, anguish, deep sorrow occurs as we are overwhelmed with the problem of evil. We don't have answers. Many of us, if we gave the problem of evil any real consideration, would conclude that the problem of evil is a real problem. So that's why we don't want to consider it. If we were to think about it much, we know in our internal heart, because of our biblical illiteracy, that we would conclude that it's logically inconsistent. And so, to avoid the dilemma, we don't address it. We cheaply chirp, well, that's where faith comes in. Because we don't have an answer. It's just a matter of faith. And to those who object, whom we evangelize and say, how do you reconcile the God of the Bible with the reality of pain and suffering in this world? The reality that God would take even the life of a little three-year-old whom is a family in your church and whom themselves love Christ and who were training a little girl to love Christ 
and by her confession, even at such a young age, did. How could a loving father do that to her? And you say, well, that's where faith comes in. Is that sufficient? Is that really because the Scriptures don't have an answer that we offer this token assent to our faith? Is our faith nothing more than an unsubstantiated anti-intellectual sentimentalism? That seems to be how we distribute the faith card. Is it nothing more than a way for the psychologically weak to cope with the anxieties and discomforts of life? Well, that's not what faith is. Well, didn't we reference earlier Jesus' own words in Matthew? That we're to have childlike faith, right? faith of a child, as though they believed in Santa Claus. There's no evidence, there's, no, there's nothing logical or scientific to substantiate the claim. Uh, there's nothing that we would obviously otherwise conclude the existence of God, and especially not the God of the Bible, but we have to have a childlike faith. So that's where we go. Well, I would implore you to realize that nowhere in Scripture are we admonished to have a childlike faith. The example of children that Jesus holds up is an example of humility. That was his point. We need to be like children in their humility. In their humility dependent on the Father. Maybe we'll toss out a mystic citation of Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord, and hope that our faith is somehow going to find comfort in that. Ultimately, we know that all things will work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So, this is bad, but something better will come from it. What about Hebrews 11.1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, there's nothing to substantiate the claim. Faith is in, in what we can't see, what we can't argue for. What we can't logically bind together. What we can't necessarily biblically support. There's gaping holes in our foundation and we have to be okay with that. That's what faith is. Well, that's not at all what Hebrews 11.1 is saying. We'll hold that out. And here's the example. Isn't this blind faith as it were? Faith in things not seen? Completely misses three critical words there. Words of assurance, hope, which any lexicon will tell you is is not a baseless hope, but it is a hope of confident expectation. It is much as an assurance and an assertion of what will happen in the future. And it is congruent with the conviction, keyword, of things not seen. Conviction. So it's not blind. Our faith isn't blind because the object of our faith has 
proven His faithfulness. We're confident, we have strong convictions because God has proven Himself in His Word. In Hebrews chapter 6, for instance, and in verse 13, we read that Abraham was confident in his faith because it was in God. The object of his faith made his faith secure, and God swore by himself because there was no one greater. So a blind faith? I don't think that was the faith of Corey Ten Boom that got her through the concentration camps. Blind faith, I think that was the faith of Eli Wiesel that crushed in trial and adversity, experiencing the full fruit of man's will that is in rebellion against God. And so that's not an answer to the problem of evil. But we know there is an answer. We know there has to be. Because we have a rich testimony of how the apostles responded to their suffering, and we have their exhortations for dealing with suffering. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says, I rejoice, though I've been grieved by trials. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In James 1, James writes in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And in Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, we exult in our tribulations. And as one has said, we can choose to be ruled by our feelings of anxiety or resentment or grief. Or we can choose to be ruled by our confidence in the character of God. But how can we possibly have those kinds of exhortations if suffering is a source of doubt? How can we count our trials all joy unless there is an answer to this so-called problem of evil? How could the apostles have remained so steadfast if they thought their suffering was a threat to their faith? Or if their faith was baseless sentimentalism? They understood what we need to understand and that there is a simple yet complex answer that we'll get to next time. And that is, God is not on trial. We are. And God is not the accused. We are. We're not the judge. 
God is. And once we've established that, then we can establish that just as we are not the accusers, we are not the rescuers, nor is God in need of being rescued. The Gettys recently put to music a great 17th century hymn by Samuel Rodigas. They did this just this last year. And the hymn was titled, Whate'er My God Ordains is Right. As we close and the men come forward as we enter in our time of communion, I'll just read to you the first verse. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. And so to Him I leave it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we see from the example of our Lord perfect trust and perfect faith in His Father who experienced the worst of all suffering and pain and hardship and knowing full well what You have called Him to do and knowing full well your hatred for sin, and that he was about to pay the eternal punishment for sin and incur the wrath of your hand. And it's for that commitment and confidence in you that ultimately led him to subject to the crucifixion. Pay the penalty for our sin. That we respond to with the deepest gratitude and affection. That we commemorate now in this time as we fellowship with the body that has been crucified, buried, and risen again. As your local church. And so, Lord, as we take these things, let us commemorate the work that you have done and also our confident hope because of the security of our faith since you are the object of our faith. And as Christ was confident that you are good and that though you would crush him, you would raise him up, we are also confident in you. That in spite of the pain and suffering and anguish and trials and adversity and hardship and evil and rebellion in this life, you will be victorious. And you will be held up and esteemed and confessed by the nations that you are the one and only good king. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. 
If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.